You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. A slide will come up in about three or four slides. That, uh, the, uh, the, the Hebrew word is Yom, uh, as in Yom Kippur. Uh, Yom Kippur means Day of Atonement. Yom is used throughout the Bible. It's a question of Moses. What did Moses mean when he used Yom in this context? And it's just like bear. One word. Uh, in fact, in the Oxford English Dictionary, third edition, which, which is one of those big fat ones that you find in libraries, too big to carry, in the third edition Oxford, you'll find 60 three entries for the word B-E-A-R as a verb and a noun, because it can be a verb or a noun. Uh, 63 different things it can mean in different contexts. Now, the word by itself has no meaning. It has either a spoken context or a written context or somebody running by you context, right? So words have meaning in context. So yom has to be interpreted in its context. It can mean a day. A, a, a rotation of the earth one time, which includes night and day, bright and dark, or it can mean period of time, unspecified, or a period of time, I'll get to you in a day or so. So yom can be uh, flexible or it can be finite, depending upon the context. And so then it's the question of, what does Moses mean? <laughs> Moses wrote it, breathed by God, he's inspired to write it, and so we have to conclude it could be either. And I, I personally lean toward uh, extended period of time, unspecified, because that's not the point. The point is, out of nothing, God caused stuff to be. And here's how he did it over time. This yom, he did this. Next yom, he did that. Unspecified length of time. I'm, I'm comfortable with that. If it took thousands of years or ten thousands of years or hundreds of thousands of years, it doesn't bother me. Uh, I, I, I don't belong to that group who insists that if you don't embrace six literal days, you're not really saved. I had somebody say that to me. If you don't believe in six literal days of creation, you're not really saved. No, the Bible doesn't demand that of me. The Bible expects me to believe that Elohim caused stuff to be out of nothing. I believe that. I absolutely believe that. Science... Science cannot prove God. Science, properly used, cannot disprove God. 
Science cannot prove how things originated. Science exists to observe the observable and to examine it. And there have been great scientists um, that did a great job of observing what could be observed without coming to conclusions about origins because science can't tell you that. So, okay, now, um, uh, this this is the first of the six accounts that make up the prehistory of Genesis 1 through 11, the accounts of the heavens and the earth, the Toledo. Uh, human beings are created, they're placed in Eden, centerpiece of the two trees, tree of life, tree of knowledge of good and evil, both reflecting God's own being. Uh, in chapter 3, we have the serpent. He comes and lures them into disobedience, followed by God cursing the serpent and cursing the lamb and judging the woman and the man. And after a, a, a momentary alleviation with their punishment, they, they lose God's presence. They're sent out of the presence of God. The, chapter 4 is Cain's murder of his brother Abel and Cain's further banishment from God's presence. And that, that's that uh, account. Next one is the account of Adam's family line. Uh, the genealogy stands in contrast to Cain's line. Uh, two, two important things about this genealogy. Um, first, it begins in 5.3 and ends in 5.29 with echoes from the prologue. Uh, Seth is in Adam's likeness, and Noah will, will bring comfort from the curse. Um, the, pay attention to uh, uh, children being in uh, following the way of their father. Uh, when you get to the kings, that's almost a, a, a consistent reminder. Uh, king so-and-so died. And his son became king, and he followed in the way of his father. And that becomes a comment about uh, were they for God or against God? Were they for the covenant or against the covenant? And so part of the storytelling with the kings is rooted in um, uh, does this person follow the model who was before them? And then it's a question of uh, did you see what they modeled? <laughs> you know, wickedness or righteousness? Uh, the account of Noah, uh, at the beginning, how Noah's righteousness echoes Enoch's walking with God. And observe also how the story echoes the original creation story, so that in effect it becomes a second creation narrative, where God you know, re reboots everything. Uh, the flood returns the world to its state of being formless and empty, sort of. And the covenant with Noah is full of echoes from Genesis, first couple of chapters, reestablishment of the seasonal cycles, Command to multiply. Humankind is in God's image. So those, those statements are repeated again after the, the flood. And so here God is starting over. And thus he makes a covenant never to destroy the whole earth in such a fashion away. So that's one promise of God with the rainbow as the, the signification in the sky. God gives signs. And the, the rainbow is one of the first signs. And some readers of the Bible misunderstand a sign uh, as if a sign is going to tell me something secret and I have to figure out what the mystery is. And sometimes it's just a sign. Where will you find a sign around here? A literal, actual, factual sign. Babu, you're looking at the window and what do you see? It's a sign. It signifies the presence of something or it identifies by consensus what we call that. And somebody at some point paved that, and the city of Richmond was submit, somebody who, who built this community had the opportunity to assign names, okay? Sometimes a developer, sometimes a, a, a civil engineer for the city. The sign is simply telling you what they agreed upon. That's a sign to signify something. 
It's not to tell a mystery. There may be a mystery behind the name on that sign. Okay, go research and find. But typically, it's simply, it's signifying a fact. And so a rainbow, rainbow operates as a sign from God that reminds people of God's promise not to destroy the earth the way he did last time. So that when you get to the New Testament, people are looking for signs, and Jesus says, you're running around looking for signs, some mystery being revealed. And guess what? I'm it. And when it comes to eschatology, what is the sign of the coming of the Son of Man? It's clearly stated in Matthew's Gospel. The sign of the coming of the Son of Man is the appearance of the Son of Man. What? It's like a sign on the road. It's just telling you, you have arrived. The sign of the coming of the Son of Man is the arrival of the Son of Man. Go back and read Matthew's Gospel. The whole, read the whole thing. And then, and when I come back in a few weeks, you tell me if I blew it or not. Okay. Now, when I come back, am I doing later prophets or Jesus Week? Thank you. Jesus Week, Paul Week. Okay, I, I can do that. Yeah, looking forward to it. Okay, uh, the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, the development of human civilization into three basic people groups known to the Israelites. The Bible never talks about humans in the terms of race. That never occurs in the Bible. It talks about people in terms of family, in terms of tribe, in terms of clan, and in terms of ethnic. In fact, the New Testament word, what we use Ethnic is a Greek word, ethne, which means a people that share a bunch of things in common. And then in context, you determine, okay, they share language, they share, share tradition. Uh, in modern terms, we say they share DNA. They, uh, so you have a family that's, you know, three or four generations. And then uh, you get more, they have more kids, and then you have a clan that's six or seven generations. And they, they grow and have more kids. And so now you've got great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. You've got seventh and eighth generation. That's a tribe. And follow that through uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A tribe is when you've gotten to the seventh or eighth generation. And eventually, they have so many kids that, a tri that tribes become a nation. And that nation is an ethne, an ethnic group. And so that, that's, that's where we're leading. And uh, the Old Testament will translate as uh, goy. Goyim, and all of the Goyim, all of the nations, will be blessed because Abraham and his family are blessed. And so Abraham's family, that ethnic group, is to be a blessing to all of the nations of the earth. That's the promise and the, and the prophecy that is fulfilled in the New Testament by the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom that Christ came to establish. So that all the nations, all of the ethne of the world will hear the good news. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached among all of the ethne and then the end will come. Okay. Test me in that. Okay. The Bible doesn't teach race. That's a, that's a human sinful distortion of God's plan. We are not a planet of races. We are a planet of ethnics. The Bible's very clear about that. And God expects there to be representatives from every known ethnic group on the planet to worship and bow and praise and adore. All at the same time. So, now, uh, the account of Terah. The account of Terah is, is uh, 
chapter 11 through chapter 25. Now, the son of Terah is Abraham. Terah was Abraham's father. And so Abraham dominates the account of Terah. So, but Moses entitled it, and this is the Toledot, the account of Terah. And he, he may as well have said the account of Abraham. Uh, Abraham dominates this family story, everything from chapter 11 to chapter 25. Skillfully written narrative introduces Abraham's family. Uh, they've moved part way to Canaan in chapter 11 with a special note about Sarah's barrenness. The key moments uh, are in chapter 12 where God calls Abraham to leave Haran and go to the land I will show you. So sight unseen, he's supposed to pick up and leave so that he can see. Uh, he can't have a Zoom meeting with you know, God showing him you know, a, a, a virtual tour of the land. He's got to actually get up, leave his home, and travel there. Uh, after obediently traveling to the land that is inhabited by Canaanites, there's already people living there, Abraham traverses the whole land up and down, back and forth, and then he's promised to your offspring, to your seed, I will give this land. Whereupon he built an altar there to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord. And that, that's a key there that uh, Abraham did not have a Bible. A Abraham didn't have the book of Genesis to read. It hadn't been written yet. Uh, I would put Abraham uh, about 4,000 years ago. So 2000 B.C. to about 1900 B.C. is, is where Abraham So Abraham was 4,000 years ago. Uh, no part of the Bible has been written. He's got no scripture to read about God. All he's got is a relationship with God. And, and, and God talks to him. And ever how that looked, uh, they had relationship. Uh, in, in, in the rest of the narrative uh, of Abraham, you'll see several themes played out in one form or another. The promised land will be given to the promised seed. Uh, they will become a great nation and then be a blessing to all the other nations. Even though the Canaanite, Canaanites now possess the land and Sarah is barren. And so there's this promise that they'll have all the land except there's already people there. And they're going to have a lot of children. And at that point, they've had no children. Uh, so uh, Abraham trusts the Lord and he worships the God who has promised this before he has seen the promise. And then there, there are four crucial narratives that conclude the Abraham story. Uh, first comes the testing of Abraham as to whether he's willing to give up his own son, his firstborn son, to God. And you got that cru crucial element of, of him uh, pulling out the knife and, and ready to bring it down to sacrifice his son. Uh, there's the renewal of the promises that God makes with Abraham, Abraham's obedience and his implied trust in God throughout, God's provision of a sacrifice in place of Isaac, and then taken together, the death of Sarah and the death of Abraham completes that promised land theme and then moves on to the rest of his family, which takes us to the account of Ishmael. And you have that whole Hagar-Ishmael, that's so weird. There's Sarah, and she hasn't had a child yet, and she gets impatient, and here, take Hagar. And that's, that's every, that kind of story. If we've become modest and sensitive in our own Christian walk, we read a story like that and go, you, what was she thinking? It's just so out of, out of, out of sorts. Within the culture, that wasn't out of sorts. That was, that was fairly normal behavior. Uh, it doesn't mean that it was the right thing to do, but they did it. It happened. And they lived with the mess. And it, it was a mess. Um, but God fulfilled his promise to make Ishmael, not just Isaac, into a great 12-tribe nation in Genesis 17, 20. That's a promise that God said. You know, even though he, he, he was not 
the child through which the promise would pass of the land and the covenant, he was the child nonetheless who would become a father of many kids who would become 12 tribes. And so God blessed him in that way. In the hope that one day those children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, would receive the blessing through Abraham. Uh, we have the account of Isaac. Isaac's story is mainly about Jacob, who represents the chosen line. Uh, promises made to Abraham are repeated for Isaac's listening and for Jacob to be aware of, in case they didn't get it. And the idea was, uh, if Abraham did a good job, he would have told his children and his grandchildren all of the episodes. And that, that it doesn't record those statements, but that's the assumption. I think that's a fair assumption that Abraham, as a father and grandfather, told those stories and handed them down to the next generation. And again, following prayer, the promised seed is born to a barren woman. Uh, Esau uh, despises his firstborn right. He, it shows his character, and by implication, that of his descendants, the Edomites. And so Esau's offspring wind up following with that same uh, despising the, the position they could have had. Um, in chapter 26, Isaac repeats Abraham's failure, and God intervenes to protect the, the promised seed. Uh, it continues through that uh, account of Isaac. In chapters 27, 28, despite Jacob's cheating Esau out of his father's blessing and living up to his name, which meant he deceives, uh, God renews the Abrahamic covenant with him. And that also marks the beginning of the change in Jacob's character. He, he's, he's going through a, a spiritual boot camp with God. And he does, in fact, have uh, some events that surround his reconciliation with Esau that shows he's learned from his mistakes. Um, there's a narrative where his name is changed from Yaakov to Israel. Yaakov means heel grabber. That was the name they gave him after they were born, the twins, and he was grabbing at the heel of his brother, Yaakov, uh, which comes out in English as Jacob. In uh, Greek, it was pronounced uh, Jacobo, and the Jacobo came into Latin as Yame, and Yame in Latin is spelled in English as James. And so the modern word James is derived from Jacob. Jacob. So, in case you didn't know, my brain is filled with various trivia that just sort of comes out sometimes. Uh, oh, uh, l let me give you um, an encouragement that as you're reading together out loud, do not be self-conscious about pronunciation, especially of names. A, a, lot, of, a, a lot of DBS students are, are very, very fearful that they'll be judged because they mispronounce a name. Don't be. Uh, read it phonetically, and if it appears to be, to be a long vowel, let it be long. If it's a short vowel, let it be short. If you're unclear, let it be in the middle. Because most of the names, as they come out in English translation, do not sound like the original Hebrew. Therefore, you're not doing any damage. Okay? Uh, Jacob's name in Hebrew was Yaakov. Uh, I love Shlomo. Shlomo, that's an awesome name. We, we say Solomon. But Shlomo, that's just, it just it rolls off the tongue. Uh, it's not David. It's Dawid. It's not Jerusalem, it's Jerusalem. It's not Jericho, it's Jericho. In fact, there's no J in Hebrew. Of all the J's we have in the Old Testament, they didn't have a J. Uh, J is a, is a Latin letter, and in many languages today, it's not pronounced as a J, it's pronounced as either H or Y, right? Um, so, uh, there, it, it, so when the angel Gabriel 
talk to Miriam, Mary, about uh, the boy that she would give birth to. You shall give him the name Yeshua, because he shall yashai his people. Yeshua um, is, is salvation comes from Yahweh, or Yahweh brings salvation, because the verb Yeshua is save or deliver. And so that's out of Isaiah, where several times uh, the declaration is that uh, the Messiah is Savior. And so Messiah is derived from the word anointed one. Uh, the word we have as save or salvation comes from the Hebrew expression Yahshua, Yeshua, a verb and the noun. And so his name is, sounds like the word for save, combined with the word Yahweh. So uh, as you're reading together, uh, go, ahead, go ahead and blurt out the names and do it phonetically. And, and don't be judgy with each other, but just push on through. Yeah, bamboo. What about just blurt it out. And, and, and it's okay to chuckle with each other when, when a word does strike you as odd, as, as not ordinary to your ears. That's okay. Uh, especially when you get to the genealogies. Now, each each school has to decide, do you read every name in the genealogy or not? And, and I, I leave it to you guys. Um, I, one time I was reading through by myself, and I told myself, I'm going to read every word out, out loud. I was sitting uh, on the back porch of my dad's house. I drug out my guitar, and I started strumming, and I, 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 I put a tune. So I'm reading through genealogy names. And I'm, I'm doing it in a sing-song, poetic manner with the guitar. I got through it. <laughs> Nobody was listening to me. But so just as word, word of advice, as you're reading out loud together, don't be self-conscious when you get to names, uh, people names, place names, city names. Just go ahead and, and, and read it phonetically as you see the letters, the, noun, the consonants and the verbs in front of you. Do your best. Um, and don't don't correct each other in a judgmental way. But if it's a significant word that it helps to pronounce it correctly, then then go ahead and, and guide each other in a loving fashion. Okay. Because for most of the names, we're not pronouncing them at least in the English language exactly as they did in the Hebrew or Greek. Okay. Any questions or thoughts on that? I do love names, and when we come across some of these names, I'll, I'll mention, you know how it sounded back then or what it meant back then, if it meant something. Uh, the account of Esau. Esau's lineage, the Edomite, Edomites, became a great nation, as promised, uh, but also another of the neighbors who continually threatened the chosen people and their security in the promised land. And uh, that's Edom on the east side of the Jordan River, which is the modern-day nation of Jordan. It's actually the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. So it's the Hashemite king. But that's another story. The account of Jacob, uh, chapter 37 through 50. Another long story. Um, it's primarily about Joseph, whom God uses to rescue Israel and the nations in Egypt, uh, rescue them from the famine, um, uh, the promised seed that can be preserved. If the family had died of the famine, that would have ended the covenant and the promise that God made with Abraham. And so that, uh, that whole story weaves together to show us God... God can deal with famine. And it wasn't that he all of a sudden made the crops grow. is that he moved the whole people to where the food was going to be plenty for quite a while. And 
take the son who had been sold to a traveling caravan, but basically was a slave, and wind up in prison in a foreign land, uh, he's, he is able to interpret dreams, and, he, and he's elevated to basically the secretary of agriculture, in which agriculture was the number two action of that country. And so he's, he's like in the top position in the national government. And so, wow, what a transformation. Perfectly positioned so that his whole family can come and live and move and, and prosper and be there for a generation or two. So um, things go bad. That dynasty falls, and you get a different dynasty who did not know Joseph, and they wind up becoming slaves. Well, God can deal with slavery also. And then you get, you know, later on you get Exodus and Moses, so the account of Jacob, uh, various themes that hold the story together. God overturns the brother's evil against Joseph. You meant it for bad. God can turn it into good. He allows Joseph to languish in prison, which came about because of Joseph's refusal to sin. The whole Potiphar's wife thing. and you know, he, uh, he finally rescues him and elevates him to the divinely given ability to interpret dreams, which, uh, which is like a foreshadowing of Daniel much later. And so God is able to, to use his mouthpieces, his messengers, to interpret dreams when he needs to. Um, God works through a younger, despised son. He wasn't among the older group of sons. He was in the younger group. Uh, noted that at the end in chapter 48, Jacob's blessing of Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, continues the pattern of God choosing the younger sons who had been not favored by the older brothers. Okay. Uh, Dale's question about uh, the, the the days of creation. Genesis is the six-day creation account literal. Okay. Now here's an overview of different perspectives. Okay. I'm listing them. I, I I list various points of view on things that can be discussed or debated or not quite clearly determined. I think it's okay to to lay it all out on the on the table. And then be able to look at them and lay out the pros and cons. Now, I'm not going to give you the, all the pros and cons. If you want to read the pros and cons of the Days of Creation, uh, there's a great handbook. Uh, Victor Hamilton wrote a handbook on the Pentateuch. And in it, he goes into detail on the Days of Creation. So Victor Hamilton's handbook on the Pentateuch, excellent uh, handbook. It's not a real commentary, but it's a great handbook on the books of Moses. And in it, he lists that uh, one perspective is the complete literal by genealogy. Therefore, and, and, and um, oh, who was it? Bishop Usher, uh, hundreds of years ago, went through, and he, and he guessed that every generation was about 40 years, and he went father, son, father, son, through every genealogy he could find. And he concluded that based upon six literal days of creation and the genealogy, that the creation of the world happened in 4,000 BC. So the earth is 6,000 years old, according to Bishop Usher. And there are some Christians who embrace that and insist that the rest of us believe that, and if we don't, we're going to hell. Chill, okay? Uh, no, it, it, the Bible doesn't say that. Uh, it, it could be six literal days with a time gap between verse 1 and 2, where there's dinosaurs and Neanderthals who predate Homo sapiens. And so that's one perspective, where there's a gap. Uh, there may be literal days with a time gap between the garden and between the flood, an unspe unspecified period of time between the garden and the flood. And so somewhere between Adam and Eve and Noah, there's a big gap of time. Or non-literal days, 
where yomim, yom is singular, yomim is plural, days, spanning possibly thousands of years or hundreds of thousands of years, unspecified in its length. And I'm comfortable with that. I, I don't like that first one. Uh, complete literal by genealogy, therefore the earth was created 4000 BC. Pottery has been dated by ion mass spectrometry 15,000 years. Uh, I don't like carbon dating, just my opinion. Um, when I was in graduate school, I worked for Dr. Ken Purser. You can, you can Google Dr. Kenneth Purser. He was from New Zealand. Uh, he studied in New Zealand and Australia. Uh, I think his PhD was from University of Kansas Physics. He was a physicist, and he developed uh, the, the, the first really affordable ion mass spectrometry. And uh, I met him back in 1979, and he was the president and owner of General Ionics. And back then, only uh, governments and universities could afford a $2 million machine, an ion mass spectrometer. And so it was $1.5 or $2 million for an ion mass spectrometer. Any of you ever watch NCIS? Abby Shuto? Okay. Mass spec. She's got a machine in her lab, an ion mass spectrometer. Because uh, when that show came out, those machines could be bought for $80,000. That's, that's, that's great. Now, Kenneth Purser, the physicist, I, I was his caretaker. Uh, he, they had a small estate north of Boston. While I was in school, uh, we lived in their basement in this really fabulous house in a fabulous neighborhood. And my wife was the cook and housekeeper. I was the caretaker for the property. I did all the repairs and maintenance and snow removal. That's a big deal north of Boston, snow removal. And anything he wanted done around the house, I did. I got to know him. He got to know me. He was not a believer in the resurrection. He'd grown up in uh, the Anglican church. Um, and he still followed church tradition, but he didn't. He didn't have a. He didn't have a heart for Christ yet. And he was. He was very clear as a physicist, explaining to me that carbon dating is a religion. Now here's a scientist, a physicist, telling me carbon dating is a religion. And I was curious. Do do tell. And he explained to me that the half life and the half life and the half life is based upon an assumption not based upon science. He said ion mass can be measured. He made his living. He made a good living <laughs> designing. And, and look him up. He had several patents uh, as a physicist with the different parts and components and mechanisms, not just of ion mass spectrometers, but of other uh, physical machines used in calibration for equipment that goes into space, into aircraft carriers, into the space shuttle. Uh, to be able to measure all the things down to the smallest particle and ion. Ion is the, the small particles. So he explained to me, carbon dating is, is stupid, his words. As a physicist, he said, however, ion mass can be used to do dating. And uh, so, so he did test. He built the machine that did the, the dating of the Shroud of Turin. And so he knew what the results were, which were never officially publicly released by the Catholic Church, that the, the, uh, the fabric itself was from the 1300s, that the seeds that were embedded within the cloth were from the 1300s. The dye 
that, that was in part of the fabric of the Shroud of Turin was from the 1300s. He said there was nothing on it. And I told him ancient Jews didn't use shrouds. There's no record of first century Jews in Israel using shrouds. That violated their burial tradition. Okay, so anyway, the Shroud of Turin, what, what I'm trying to say is um, he dated ceramic pottery from 15,000 B.C. And his conclusion, and uh, where, um, where carbon dating was assigning something as a million years old, he would come back with the ion mass spectrometer and determine it's only 7,000 years old or 10,000 years old. So ion mass, I mean, you can, you, I, I don't understand how it does it, but it would come up on a screen. And there's a diagnosis. If you watched NCIS, Abby would look at it, and it would, it would break down every chemical and element component that goes through the spectrometer. That's awesome. Well, Dr. Ken Purser was the first one to make a machine that you could actually put on a truck and deliver to somebody. Before then, you had to build it on the site. It filled up a building. Anyway, his conclusion was the Earth is maybe a few hundred thousand years old, but not billions. He said there's no evidence to show that. And, so, and he was not speaking as a creationist. Now, he knew I was a creationist, and we had great debates about, you know, Miracle, and I, I'm I'm a I'm a creationist. I believe in miracles. So as a scientist, he said claiming the world is billions of years old is not scientifically responsible, because science can't tell you that. But he did say ion mass could tell you that that ceramic was was fired in a kiln, and he, he said when it comes to fifteen or or thirty thousand years, he could get within fifty years. So, anyway, look him up. Fascinating guy. Uh, uh, Purser, P-U-R-S-E-R. Purser, Purser. Yeah, <coughs> Kenneth. Uh, he passed away a few years ago. Um, others will say that the creation story is a non-historical myth contradicted by Darwinian theory of evolution. And so whatever Darwin wrote proves the Bible is wrong. That's one position. I disagree with that position wholeheartedly. Therefore, science would disprove the Bible. My caution is this. Science probes the observable world and cannot prove or disprove the creative act of God. There's good science that knows what it, what it can do and what it can say based upon real observation. I know some godly, resurrection-believing scientists and physicists and, and chemists, and, and they know the limitations of science, but they push it to its limit. Biblical studies probes the unobservable relationship between God and human beings. Biblical studies probes that unobservable relationship between God and humans. I can tell you I've heard from the Spirit, but you can't see it. Can you? You can tell me you had a dream, and that dream informs you about God's destiny for your life. Well, I can't see that. That's unobservable. Now, if I know you, and I see your life, and I see your behavior, and I see your character, I might believe that you just had an experience with God. I've also heard people tell me reports of visions and dreams, prophecies, and their life did not commend Christ at all because their behavior was lousy. I, therefore, did not believe they actually had an encounter with God. An unobservable experience based upon what I can observe. Does that make me a skeptic? Uh, it makes me a realist. 
I've been around long enough that I'm not afraid to discern the spirit of people around me. Don't be afraid of that. Okay. Uh, YWAM, as a mission and as a ministry, has always been open to God. But when you open up, you might open up to all kinds of stuff and all kinds of people. Be discerning. Nothing wrong with being discerning. I, I encourage you, be discerning. Test what you hear. Test me. Don't just believe it. Be, be like the Bereans when they heard Paul. They went back to the scripture they had to test and examine what he had just said to see if it lined up or not. So, uh, th this is uh, a, a, an overview of some of the chronologies. Victor Hamilton in his book goes into greater detail. And there are other books that deal with it from a scientific perspective. Um, our task here is not to evaluate every one of them, but I give, it, give you the overview. Now, um, most ancient cultures left behind some versions of their creation stories, their folklore, their myths. Uh, the ancient uh, Sumerians, the Babylonians. Um, I, I've read the Central African Zulu creation story. It is so cool. Uh, the Mitzrayim, the Egyptians, they had their, their, and not just one story, but many stories. Uh, I've read the Norse story, uh, the whole Odin stuff. Um, uh, the Aztecs had a great story. And um, the, the, the existence, where, where, oh, there, the existence of a variety of creation stories does not detract from the validity of the one true account. Rather, it demonstrates how far humans will go to explain their origins oftentimes seeking future purpose in past narratives. From an, from an anthropology perspective, I think it makes sense that as people spread out around the globe and got farther and farther from the garden and farther away from where Noah and the ark was and farther away from the roots, they retained elements of the earliest stories, creation and flood and retold them. And those stories took on different forms and, and got assigned new twists and new characters. And what remains in them is something originated us, and then there was some cataclysm, everything got flooded, and then there was some kind of restoration. Th those, are, those are two common themes you find all over the world in ancient cultures. The vast number of stories suggest they share one common ancient truth, no matter how distorted they became over, over time. And, um, um, God has put eternity in the hearts of human beings. God has put eternity, a, a, a hope of eternity, in the ancient stories. And sometimes a big gap develops between the ancient stories that their ancestors told, which get distorted, and the hope of eternity that will come someday. And uh, if you ever have a chance, read Don Richardson's book, Eternity in the Hearts of Men, because he was a missionary anthropologist who discovered, in, he was in Indonesia, Polynesia, the Pacific Islands, and he, he discovered every village he went to had some version of the different stories. And as a Christian missionary, his attitude was, I'm not going to tell them to forget their story. I'm going to tell them, tell me your story. And I'm going to find within your story the truth that is there. And I'm going to tell you about the God who planted that story in you. So, someday read that story. Um, question? Oh, uh, uh, Don Richardson is the author. The name of the book is Eternity in the Hearts of Men. 
which is borrowed from the uh, book of Ecclesiastes, which tells us God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. And then it's the question of what does it mean? And Richardson is saying that the, the hope of eternity and the ancient stories that anticipated eternal life with God. So that um, in one village, they had the ancient story of the conflict of uh, light and dark, good and evil. And the villagers would fight against the other villager. And the other, the other village was the dark village. They were the light village. And the only way they would, and they would fight for generations. The only, only way they could have peace is if the chief of one village would give his newborn son to the chief of the other village. And they called that the peace child. And so for that generation, until that child died, they were to be at peace with each other. And so they had that story. And Don Richardson listened to the story and said, that is the best story in the world. We tell the same story. Let me tell you how we tell it. And so he wrote a book called Peace Child, and he records that. When I was pastoring in Mechanicsville, a few miles from here, we had Don Richardson come and speak at our church at a missions convention. Oh, he had such great stories of, in the past, sometimes missionaries would go to, uh, to remote villages and would just reject all of the, the folk tales and myths and stories of that group and would try to Christianize them by civilizing them as if uh, the European way of telling the story was the only truth. Instead of listening to the story, realizing these go back ancient days and many of the stories have become distorted, but that's okay. Within it, there's truth, which is what I mentioned earlier, what Paul did when he went to Athens with the agnostotheo, the altar to the unknown God. He took an ancient story that was 900 years old and he knew their story and what, what happened next in, in, in Book of Acts but that's for another day. Okay, now, moving right along. <laughs> so, um, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. To call something is to name it, implying ownership. The person who had the right to, to name something owned it. They had dominion and responsibility. Remember this. Each time you read about God calling or naming or renaming somebody, God is asserting his authority, his ownership, his responsibility. How many times does God say name them or he gives a new name? Jesus talking to the boys. Hey, who do men say I am? And they're in class. They're like, ooh, I know the answer to this one. Uh, some say you're one of the prophets. Some say you're John the Baptist come back from the dead. And, and uh, Cephas is over there. He's like, mm, no, 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 I got it, I got it. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And in a rabbinic school, when a bunch of students have blurted out the wrong answer and finally one student gets the answer right, the teacher would give the student a nickname that was in some way related to their answer, but also was a, a way to show teacher's pet. I like what you said. And so Cephas, that was his name, Simon. Simon gave the answer. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, what you have said is rock solid. From now on, I'm going to call you Rocky. And upon this rock solid statement, the church will be built. That's what Petra, that's what Peter means. Uh, in Greek, it's Petros. In Aramaic, it's Petra. And so they were speaking Greek at that, that event. And so he gave him the name Rocky. 
And I know the Roman Catholic Church says that the church is built upon the apostle Peter as the first pope. And so Peter, in their eyes, is the rock foundation of the church. I disagree with that respectfully. The confession that, Jesus, that Peter made was, you are the Christ Messiah. You are the Son of God. Because the question was, who do people say I am? And so Jesus asserted his authority, his dominion, his ownership of Simon. Gave him a new name, Rocky. And from, and from the rest of the Gospels, he's no longer mentioned as Simon. He's mentioned as Peter, Rocky. As a reminder that he made a rock-solid confession. Okay, he, he struggled a couple of times, you know, the whole event around Jesus being arrested and, and, you know, Peter backing out of that and denial and stuff, but that's okay. He got over it. After the resurrection, he was, he was sold out, okay? So, it's another example of God shows ownership over that person, takes responsibility over that person. Um, Yom, again, can be a period, a day, an epoch, a duration of time, sometimes specified, sometimes an unspecified. So in, uh, in Genesis one twenty one, so God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Great creatures. Uh, tananim. I mention this because in several DBSs, students have said, what is that? Uh, Canaanites use this term to represent the divine Demonic powers of chaos confronting Baal in the beginning. It was the name of the mythological dreaded sea monster in their story. And so Moses, writing Genesis, is aware of that. And he uses that name so that when they encounter Canaanites later, who are going to be talking about the great sea beast, Moses will have already written, guess what? If there's a huge sea beast out there, guess who made it? to assert God's authority over every creature they encounter, God created it. Here, God creates them to enjoy his blessing. So, in 124, God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, creatures that move along the ground, wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. Uh, the Hebrew expression is nephesh hayah. Nephesh hayah. A uh, creature of living. Uh, nephesh is a creature or a being or a soul. Uh, Hayah is, you've heard lachayim, okay, to life. Chai is to be alive, to have life. Uh, we pronounce her name Eve. In Hebrew, it's Havilah, life giver, Havilah. We pronounce it Eve, but really Havilah, that's a beautiful word. Uh, the, the one who gives life, the one who life comes forth from her. That's, a, that's an awesome name. That's what she was, that's who she was. Uh, a nephesh is a creature of living. Um, it's elsewhere translated as soul, like Deuteronomy 6, 5. Uh, love Yahweh your God with all your nephesh. Love the Lord your God. Love Yahweh your God with all your nephesh. All of your stuff, okay? All it is that makes you alive, okay? Um, 126, God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Uh, our. Okay, who's he talking about? Uh, it raises the question of, uh, does he mean, what does he mean by us or our? Uh, can you find the answer on this page of your Bible? Does the page, first page, page one, Genesis chapter one, first page, does it tell us who God is talking to about us and our? I'm asking, does it? 
In context, the answer is no. It doesn't tell us. So inductive Bible study is observing the words on the page. And sometimes you'll, you'll encounter a word in which that chapter doesn't explain that word and what it means. But if we look elsewhere, we might find evidence. Uh, some say this is evidence of the Trinity, as one person of God addresses the other two persons. But there's no real scripture that, that explains that. Or God as king is speaking in terms of plurality or royal majesty. Uh, humans do that. Uh, human kings sometimes say, let us do this. And they're speaking in, in royal majesty, plurality. Uh, or God speaks as the creator king, announcing his crowning work to the members of his heavenly court. We do know this. God would hold court sometimes. He would have a council gathering. He and beings around him that he created that were not human would gather together to do whatever they needed to do, to do that day. Call it a staff meeting, okay? Yes, God would have staff meetings. Um, and and we, we encounter one in the book of Job. God is meeting with members of his staff, and the meeting gets interrupted by Satan. When you, when you read the book of Job, notice that. God's having a, a, a staff meeting with members of his staff. A, a, uh, in, in English translations, we'll call it a council or, or um, a, a gathering. Well, it's a staff meeting. That's what it looks like. Um, Genesis 3.22, the Lord said, uh, Man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So whoever us is lives forever, all things considered. So is that... Uh, God the Father talking to God the Son and God the Spirit affirming what they just said? Or is it the created beings, uh, the, the messengers of God, the angels of God, the cherubim, the seraphim, things like that, archangels? Or, or you know, who are they? Um, Genesis 11, 7, uh, come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. And again, chapter 11 doesn't tell us us. You and who else? It, it doesn't tell us. It's just us. Uh, Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And, I, and Isaiah's raising his hand here. He's saying, Here, here I am, send me. Well, the question was, Who will go for us? Again, it's God with, I think, his staff or his, his, uh, his uh, head commanders of the angelic forces. 1 Kings 22 19. Uh, Micaiah continued, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the host of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. So from time to time, God would sit and the host of heaven would be all around him. You get to the book of Revelation and we're introduced to this whole chorus of, of praises. And there, there are numerous statements of praise about his glory, his honor, and his power forever and ever and ever. And they would repeat that continually. And so these the host of heaven would be, the Hebrew word is malach. The Greek word is angelos. Uh, and that's where we use the word angel. It comes from the Greek word. I like the word malach better because it, it's consistent in the Hebrew of the host of heaven as the messengers of God. And he sends them away from his presence to send messages. But when they've sent their message or done their job, well, that's my alarm. Each day this week, uh, we will end at uh, 6 or thereabouts, except today. Uh, I, I have my next teaching a few minutes after 6, 
at a church in Mechanicsville uh, at uh, Speaking Spirit Ministries Church. I have a leadership training that I had committed to before I had committed to this. So um, I'm going to wrap up in just a couple of minutes and then dash out the door so that you guys have time to collect your thoughts and, and prepare for dinner, which is at 6, right? Yeah. So on that, let me take a closer look. Job 15.8 is where it says, Do you not listen in on God's counsel? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? Jeremiah 23, uh, which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to hear or see his word? So in, in numerous verses in the Bible, we're introduced to a counsel, but we're not told who they are. Now, we do see later that Gabriel makes an appearance, and that, that implies that Michael also does the same. And so Gabriel and Michael are seen as two individuals who do involve themselves in the counsel of the Lord. And, and th that's why I use the term um, uh, staff members, like a staff meeting. Revelation 7.11 says all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell down on their faces for the throne and they worshiped God. And in Genesis 2.7, we're told the Lord God formed the man from the dust on the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Ha-adam. Um, Ha-adam afa-men ha-adama. The Adam was formed out of the Adama. And Adama means dirt. So the man who gets named Adam, he's basically called Dirty, or Dirt Guy, or Clay Man. And so his name is derived actually from the word that means clay. And so it, it's, it's right for us to see that, uh, that the first human was formed from the clay, from the dirt, from the dust. And that, that's his name. So Adam is from the dust of the Adama. So the man's personal name is derived from, this, from the source of God taking dirt and causing it to become this. How do you do that? Well, I can't do that. God can. He can take one form, element, and make it become a different element that's, that's, that has circulation and muscle and nerve and thought. And so, The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So I'll, I'll end on this one. Etzer Neged, uh, a help as opposite to him. Etzer Neged, which gets translated as a suitable helper. A, a, a suitable helper as a contemporary, a complementary counterpart puzzle piece. It, it's the idea of two pieces of a puzzle designed that way, one to fit the other. Harmonious give and take, not one having power over the other, which, which I think is a, a misogynist torturing and twisting of Scripture. But there's a whole movement in the modern church that asserts that the male has power over the female because the female is the weaker spiritual element that has led men into sin. And that, that's a, it's a distortion and a misunderstanding. Going all the way back to Genesis 2, it's not about power. It is about counterpart as helping together to accomplish the mission of God on earth. And God has designed us to be suitable and to fit and to find harmony, if at all possible. Not about power, but about finding the mission of God and working together, not against. Okay? And I dare not ask a question on that point, do I? Um, and um, so that my, I might honor my other commitment, would you pray with me? God, in this time, we thank you that you've allowed us to start this week in this school together, you ask, we ask you 
So put your spirit upon us that we not be distracted by the stuff of life and the things of the world, but we'd be able to focus upon you and what you're doing in our lives at this time. We thank you for your word, which is eternal. In Jesus' name, amen.